So Tina, what was Chris's reaction um, the very first time you uh, you brought up the school bus idea? Um, Chris was on board with living full time on the road. He said, "I'm not living in a school bus." I said, "Okay, I'll I'll drop that idea." And he started researching. He came back. He goes, "I think we need to live on a school bus." <laughs> And my husband is Chris. Our oldest is Elijah. He's 13. And Riley is our youngest son. He is 10. And then we have Charlie, our dog, who he's 10 years old as well and kind of blind. Even though he's not an emotional support animal, he's very much our emotional support animal. That's Tina Wan. She lives with her husband, Chris, in Nixon, Missouri. Or, at least, that's where they lived when we first spoke with them. There are a couple details that make this family story unique. First of all, Elijah and Riley are adopted. Tina and Chris became their foster parents in 2011, and then they adopted the boys in 2014. Second, both boys are homeschooled. Riley has always been homeschooled, and Elijah was in public school until shortly after he was adopted, when he was in fourth grade. And then he went back to public school for fifth and sixth grade, and then he started homeschooling again in 7th grade. Tina and Chris made a decision in May of 2017. They were going to get rid of almost all their belongings, pull up stakes, and take their family's life on the road. And they were going to do this in, of all things, a renovated school bus. I feel like you, you can't live in a school bus and not have a name for the school bus. Uh, are you going to name it? <laughs> Probably. Uh, we had a 1963 Shasta camper that we named Cecilia. Our bus doesn't have a name yet. We name everything. Uh, so it's kind of weird that we haven't named our bus. Every vehicle we've owned, our camper, um, all of them had names. So it will have a name. We're open to suggestions. Cut to one week later after we recorded that interview. The bus has a name. That name, Big Booty Judy. There's actually a growing population of people living in remodeled school buses. They call themselves schoolies, and by and large, they manage to do a lot more with the interior of old school buses than you'd think was possible. On Instagram, you'll see butcher block kitchen counters, custom cabinets, bunk beds, rooftop patios. Another population that's growing is that of homeschoolers. Around 1.5 million children are homeschooled in the U.S., up some 400% since the mid-80s. But that doesn't mean homeschooling has gained mainstream acceptance. When I uh, started looking at the interviews and the data and talking to moms, it seemed like they had to defend their, I don't know, maternal emotion. That's Jennifer Lois, associate professor of sociology at Western Washington University and the author of Home is Where the School Is, The Logic of Homeschooling, and the emotional labor of mothering. The implication they felt was, what kind of deviant emotions allow you to keep your kids out of school and, you know, 
keeps them away from their peers while they learn, you know, valuable things. Elijah has been identified as academically gifted. Through the Duke University Talent Identification Program, Duke TIP, Elijah took the ACT as a 13-year-old. He scored a 27 out of 36, or better than about 87% of high school seniors. He was in the 89th percentile for science. When I talked with Tina on the phone, she couldn't remember his scores off the top of her head. Um, I have to find it. Let's see. Yeah, I I know over, his overall score was a 27. Um, but I don't have I don't have the individual scores memorized like he does. Actually, can I just I'm just going to grab him and he can tell you. Um, she had to go straight to the source. Hold on, one he's just right here. Can you tell me what you got on your different sections on your ACT? I got a 24 on the math, a 27 on the English, a 27 on the science. 29 on the reading, and 26 on my STEM. Nice. Thank you. Tina, what was it like the day you got the ACT results? Um, It was a Saturday morning. I opened it up, and I stared at it for about two hours. And thought several things. Um, I, I I had no idea. I really didn't expect um, to see what I saw in that paper. And there were kind of some some I don't know, just a lot of fears of Oh my goodness, are we doing the right thing with this kid? And and hey, did he cheat? Is there someone that he cheated? Because surely he cheated. <laughs> um, he didn't cheat, by the way. But just irrational thoughts coming to my mind and Chris came home and I said let's go out and we're going to surprise him and we took him out to eat and we were sitting at the restaurant and I said well I didn't uh, tell you the truth we're actually here to celebrate and I took out the scores and he saw in his his face just his mouth opened wide and he goes is that my score that's my score that's and teared up and he was just he was amazed um and just so, just so excited, just sheer happiness on that kid's face. There are two parts of Tina's story that might seem unfamiliar to most people listening to this. The adoption part and the whole living on a school bus part. Homeschooling might also be unfamiliar to a lot of listeners, but if you're part of Duke Tip, raising an academically talented child is probably something you're familiar with. Uh, he and his brother, they feed off each other. They both crave learning. They both I'm going to be honest, if they have nothing else to learn and they have a granola bar in their hand, they're reading the back of the package. Um, So the two of them together, it's kind of amazing to watch. After he got his ACT score, he goes, now can I start? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. He said, now can I start college? And I said, there's no one that's going to let you start college at 13. It's not going to happen. It did happen, though. Tina spent the next two weeks grappling with the fact that she had said no to the idea of Elijah, a seventh grader, taking a college class. She teaches the boys that in order to reach their goals, they have to say what they want and ask the questions that will determine whether or not it's feasible. And here she was saying no right from the start. So I really can't say what I... 
I have no expectations of the future. I just really leave it up to them. And the minute I start trying to get involved and decide, you know, how I think things should look, that's when things get really hard at our house. And so when I get out of their way and I just let them kind of drive this car down the path and decide where we're going, and I just facilitate by providing them with the materials they need, things just go a lot smoother. Except in this case, they're driving a bus, not a car. Yeah, right. So at this point in our story, we have two bright kids, two adoptive parents trying to navigate how to raise them, and ultimately one big decision to homeschool. Jennifer Lois, the author of Home is Where the School Is, writes that homeschooling mothers, and she does write specifically about mothers, have to fight off four common arguments from what she calls outsiders or people who don't homeschool. The main uh, attacks that moms felt that others sort of hurled their way were uh, that they were academically arrogant, like, who do you think you are that you can teach your own kids at home? So moms often felt attacked in that way. And they had a lot of defense of that, you know, like, I know my kid better than any, any teacher ever could. And so they felt like they were the right person to um, to teach their kids in that sense. Another way they felt uh, other people charged them with like this emotional deviance was that they um, were socially overprotective of their kids. And so sort of feeling judged, like you don't want to send your kids to school because you're one of those overprotective moms. And they would defend that by saying, you know, mothers are supposed to be protective of their children. And there are these real dangers in some situations. Uh, People would often cast them as uh, morally self-righteous or on the extreme end politically, and they would have to defend that. And then they also felt like people were implying that they were uh, hyper-engaged with their children to a point that was psychologically problematic. We had to get special permission from a judge for Riley to be homeschooled because he was in foster care, and it became obvious pretty early that the traditional school setting wasn't going to work for him. And for a combination of reasons, he couldn't sit down, he couldn't stop talking. Um, it It was a problem. It was really hard for him to sit in a group setting and participate in class as he would be expected to in public school. Then there was this other aspect where at five years old, he's going, I want to learn how to count money. I want to learn how to tell time and I want to read chapter books. That's Riley's story. It's a lot simpler than Elijah's story. Elijah was older when Tina and Chris started fostering the boys. He was in conventional public school, first through third grade, for all three years between the day Tina and Chris became foster parents and the day they adopted the boys. We were told in foster care training, you know, these kids have moved around. Most foster kids have moved around from school to school. Maybe they weren't in school. They've been in several homes, possibly. All of these things applied to our kids. So we expected to sit around the table at night and help him with his schoolwork. Um, Instead, what we found was that he was ahead. Despite all of these challenges that he faced, he still tested, you know, at a grade level or two ahead. And just to be honest, Elijah did not want to be adopted. For three years, he had this idea in his head that he would be reunited with his biological mother. So when adoption day came, it was incredibly difficult for him because he was letting go of this entire idea that he had built up in his mind that this was going to happen for him. So he had to go through a grieving process, and we originally decided to pull him so that he could grieve um, that relationship, the loss of 
that other life in private instead of doing it so in front of these people he'd built relationships with. When we brought him in to homeschool, I'm not, I'm just, it, it was a, we failed. It, it didn't go well. Can you take us, um, can you take us inside the classroom a little bit? Um, we always did like a little bit of, this is what mom thinks that you should learn, and a little bit of, you have this free choice, you're going to get to learn what you want. So Riley was doing Spanish in kindergarten and, as I already mentioned, learning to tell time, things that he really thought he wanted to know. Um, so when we brought Elijah in, I told him, I said, you have this free choice to choose what you want. And I didn't realize at the time he's very much an idea guy. He is an inventor. He is um, constantly thinking about the next big thing. And he took on too many big things. He would either get overwhelmed with the project or he would become bored. <laughs> Even though I gave him this free choice, I was still putting my ideas. I had all of these expectations of what we needed to accomplish. and I tried to make it look like public school. And that really wasn't what he needed at all. Um, I tried to stay on grade level with him. Um, I was trying to be mom. I was trying to be teacher. He wasn't ready to have that relationship with me. And it was very strained. And I didn't recognize at the time exactly how gifted his mind was because I was too busy trying to work on becoming a family. I don't think that's unusual, actually. Jennifer Lewis again. One of the most consistent findings in the homeschooling literature, and there's not much of it, but one of the findings is that um, parents aren't sure if they can do it because, gosh, we're not professional teachers. Or what about socialization? You know, everybody asks, are my kids going to be missing out? And so sometimes those things uh, entered the homeschooling relationship and just caused more emotional conflict than would happen with a professional teacher. So, Tina, what did you do after Elijah's fourth grade year? So he was only homeschooled for a short time. We sent him um, back to public school for the, his fifth grade and sixth grade year. And during that time, I took a very hands-off approach to his education. Unless he brought something to me, I wasn't involved. And he was he was doing great with that aspect. Um, it wasn't until the end of his sixth grade year that I recognized, I started to see, he was kind of just doing what he needed to do to get by. Tina's story demonstrates pretty well that none of the typical stigmas can stick to all homeschooling families universally. The lives of individual families are just too complex. In Tina's case, she's not academically arrogant or self-righteous. She just realized that conventional classrooms weren't going to be the best option for her kids, even for Elijah, who was stuck between not being challenged at public school and not being able to handle homeschooling emotionally yet. Here's Jen Lois again. A lot of parents talked about um, how they missed their kids when they were at school, and that school is a lot of time in a child's life. Mothers talked a lot about kind of the anxiety that motherhood was slipping away, and you're going to blink, and your children's childhood is going to be gone, and um, that impacted, for many moms, 
uh, the way they thought about homeschooling. And so if you adopt kids, parents, these parents have even less time traditionally with kids until they're, you know, legal age or traditional college age or that kind of thing when most kids like leave the house or are more independent and on their own. You said they're traveling in an RV or something? They're renovating a school bus. It's kind of a subculture of of the uh, tiny home movement, I guess. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Yeah, so there were families who sailed around the world for a year or two years or that kind of thing. And um, so for some of those families, that's a choice about how you want your family to be. And homeschooling is uh, the way that allows you to parent the way you want to. And so that was a common theme among the moms I talked to. Homeschooling is not primarily a choice about education. It's primarily a choice about parenting. started talking about as a family we were going to um, move out of our home and travel full-time and I thought you know we've done a lot of healing if we're even considering this to take such a drastic change and move our family and be in such a small enclosed place together we had really healed and it was then I started looking at okay now what do we do for him now that we are really this family, this unit, we're excelling and getting to spend all of this great time together. What do we do with that educationally for him? What that meant for Elijah was that he was going to spend his seventh grade year in the foreseeable future as a homeschooler. And Elijah's shift to homeschooling came at a time when Tina was reevaluating her teaching methods based on the fact that now all of a sudden Riley, the younger son, had also started struggling with homeschooling, even though it's the only life he had ever known. We were just really, we were struggling. And homeschool had always been really easy with him. And I thought, what changed? And it was that I had brought in all of these workbooks. Um, I looked at all of these different ideas of learning to learn, learning how to ask questions, learning how to find um the educational resources that you need instead of me handing everything to them and saying, here, this is what you're going to do. I was sitting down with Riley and I thought, man, this isn't working. There's got to be more. And I said, make a list of a hundred goals. And that's really the core of our homeschool now is what is it that you want to do? What is it that you want to learn? This idea of the hundred goals is what ultimately led to the school bus. Each family member, kept a running list of 100 goals, big and small. As soon as you accomplish one goal, you add another one. You're always at 100. Riley finished his list first. He had his goal list, and I looked at it, and I thought, what am I doing? He had on there that he wanted to have a food fight. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what have I done? Because I told him this is going to be your school. And that led to, we went to the grocery store, and First grade, he wrote down the prices of everything that he needed for his food fight and had to do the math. Uh, he had to plan the whole thing. And so much learning took place that I got really excited. And he was excited, and I knew we were on to something. And then I had my goal list, and um, Elijah started his list. And before long, our family just kind of transformed. 
And that was really a key part of the healing. It was not just educational, uh, but it helped us become a better unit of the family. And so it's worth repeating something Jen Lois said a few minutes ago. Homeschooling is not primarily a choice about education. It's primarily a choice about parenting. I actually put on my goal list that I wanted to take a a month-long homeschool road trip. I wanted them to stand in all of the places um, that they were seeing in their books. I wanted, I looked at their list and it was a lot of travel stuff. So Christmas 2016, we go to Washington, D.C. and we have this, I call them movie moments where it's very dramatic. It sounds very dramatic and over the top, but it really happened. We were standing in front of the Declaration of Independence, the original document, and he looks down with tears in his eyes and he says, we live in a great country. And he's so emotional and so wrapped up in that moment. And I thought, you can't get this from a book. You can't get this. This is something that he needed to experience. Uh, And so, yeah, the whole idea was born out of this you know, 400 goals that combined together that we wrote down, and, and this just made the most sense. Even for homeschooling families, that's, a, that's you know, a little, it's an outlier. <laughs> that's a different Jennifer, Jennifer Jolly, associate professor in the College of Education at the University of Alabama, and the author of the book, A History of American Gifted Education. She's also done research on homeschooling, but only by way of her research on gifted education. In 2009, she was part of a project that surveyed close to a 1,000 parents of gifted students. When a lot of the parents who responded were homeschoolers, she realized something. I kind of felt ignorant about it. I thought, geez, we haven't even really thought about these kids. And that made us really think about, um, you know, what we weren't doing for them as a, or because I'm really involved in um, the National Association for Gifted Children, you know, what how we weren't or were serving them in that organization. So she ended up doing an entire spinoff study looking at the intersections between gifted education and homeschool education. Well, I mean, if you think about some of the first types of education we had in the U.S., and it was mostly for people who had money, they were all homeschooled. Those were the first types of schooling we had in the U.S. You know, kids were tutored at home. Now, I don't know if they were out you know, in buggy and wagon out traversing. But, you know, and even people who migrated west across the United States, all of that schooling took place, you know, on the road. So we knew we needed a bus with a um, with an inside six foot, I think six foot five. And we knew we wanted a certain engine. And we knew we wanted a flat nose. So we knew what we were looking for. And there, five miles from our house, sat our bus. Um, in our price range, and every feature that we needed. So we bought it, and the next day we took the kids over, and um, I told them to get out. They, you know, obviously were, they already knew at this point what we were planning on doing, and I pointed at the bus. I said, welcome to your new home, which was a really odd thing to say. You know, they got on the bus, and he's like, oh, I've never even been on a school bus before. So the family transitioned from a kind of we're going to make homeschool look as conventional as possible strategy to more of a goal-oriented, interest-driven curriculum. And it's really worked for them. This was Elijah's seventh grade year, 
It was the year he took the ACT. It was the year Tina figured out how to balance between being a mom and being a teacher. I knew when I brought him back this time, uh, I just wanted to be mom. So we found an online program and decided, you know what, we're going to have the teacher be video, uh, pre-recorded videos. So it's this online curriculum. We take the final first. Then I look at what they miss and I assign lessons based on what they missed. When it's all said and done, we'll take the final again. We are going to take him on field trips. And sometimes I just stand in the corner and let them talk to uh, whoever's working at the museum. We print off books from vocational schools about small engines, and that's what he does for part of his school. And so I had to let go of, okay, this doesn't have to look like public school, and that's been a slow process. And I really have always wanted them to, um, I guess part of their education comes from what questions do you have, not what does the state expect you to learn, what do I expect you to learn, but what is it you're really curious about? And then let's find people who love that field and so you can get excited about it too. We're working on a paper right now where we're reconsidering the definition of homeschooling. This is Jennifer Jolly again. The definition of homeschooling is that it's parent-controlled and takes place in the home. That's a, that's a definition that's been around since the 70s. That's not the case anymore. Like, so much of it doesn't take place in the home, and, and the curriculum is not part, not really under control of the parent when they're farming it out to community colleges or even universities or going online. So I think there really needs to be a reconsideration of what homeschooling is now. Which is pretty similar to how there was a reconsideration of what gifted education can be. Gifted education programs haven't always been in place. It's more of a grassroots movement because you don't see it becoming systematically um, implemented across the country in a really um, strategic way. Really until... um, the 1970s, it's places where administrators, teachers, um, maybe some researchers at universities who have connections with school districts um, or administrators who have studied under certain people bring it into their school districts and introduce it. You know, gifted ed's history is not linear. Even today, I feel like there's been a lot of ebbing and flowing starts Um, but I feel like we've come a long way, um, there's still a long way to go. And I think that's part of why there's this homeschooling movement, um, because the, the long way to go is still there. And, you know, if you're waiting five years for something to happen, that's a whole, that's a child's basically elementary school time. And parents don't want to wait. Some parents just don't have that time to wait or don't want to wait that long. Tina, do you have a vision um, of how long you plan to live on the school bus? We really don't have any idea. Um, it's one of those things that we're, we're very flexible. If we if we get out there and we decide that this isn't really what we wanted, then we'll switch and do something else. And um, we just want to see all of the things. <laughs> we want to go to all of the places and and talk to people and experience so much, we haven't put a timeline on it. In the beginning, it's probably going to feel like we're on a vacation. And on vacation, you know, at least for our family, we 
when we go somewhere, we want to do all the things, like, and we want to do them now. And I think we're going to have to really focus on slowing down and realizing that this is our life. Like, our life is just one big vacation, but we can't just treat it that way, if that makes sense. There has to be some balance still. Uh, we're going to go have fun, and and now we're going to, you know, kind of take it easy and, and hang out for a little bit. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Duke Tip Podcast. Be sure to visit tip.duke.edu to learn all about what Duke Tip offers and how you can get involved. Special thanks to Professors Jennifer Jolly and Jennifer Lois, and a huge thanks to Tina, Chris, Elijah, and Riley for sharing a little bit of their story. We'll try to check back in with them soon, and in the meantime, you can visit their website, weliveonabus.com, and follow them on Instagram. Their handle, we live on a bus. Bye-bye.